Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. Today's episode is one that I did not originally plan, and so it's not going to fit uh, exactly in the uh, the vein of this part of the season. But it does give us a good opportunity to look back at some of the things that we've learned about propaganda and to apply them kind of in a, a real world situation. Um, because unfortunately, uh, what is going on with the conflict in Israel and Palestine is giving us an opportunity to see propaganda in action. Now, Palestine and, uh, and Israel, uh, the conflict that's going on there is something that I have taken interest in for a while now. Because when you take a look at nonviolent, and Palestinians have been participating in nonviolent action for a long time, uh, decades, I mean, over half a century, I think. Uh, and, and when you're familiar with the actions that have gone on in Palestine, the intifadas and all those things, um, it, it's just something that I've, I've taken an interest in because it's a conflict where there was a lot of opportunity for nonviolent action to uh, to form, to take shape. So overall, I'm definitely still extremely ignorant as to the history of the conflict and, and all the ins and outs, but I, I'm probably more informed than a lot of Americans. Um, and it's uh, it's been interesting as this whole thing has taken shape here with Hamas's recent attack and then Israel's retaliation that uh, I just so happen to be stateside at this point, uh, out of Romania and the community here in the United States and the news uh, agencies, especially Fox News. I mean, it's just like in insanity the the vitriol and uh, everything that that's going on in an extremely lopsided way. Now, Hamas is uh, being condemned as you know, terrorist animals. Uh, at the same time. People are here in the states, at least, are extremely dismissive of Israeli atrocities, present and past. And this really just highlights the the saying that I've been um, bringing up throughout this season, which is that propaganda makes atrocities possible, or it makes them unbelievable. You know, Palestinians are all bad. Israelis are all good. And uh, when you think that way, like most Americans seem to do, then, hey, if, uh, if hospitals get leveled, if civilians die, if kids are dying all over the place, and that's just kind of what happens in war when you're the bad guy. And in some sick way, we actually feel bad for Israel. And those poor Israelis, you know, to, to bring about justice, they're forced with these terrible moral choices and they just have to bomb the civilians to, you know, to bring about safety for themselves. And we, we almost make them into victims in the, the oppressive and uh, atrocious bombings that they're doing. And in that, there is zero accountability because the ends justify the means, uh, even if we say that they don't, even if we say that we have some high moral ethic. We just don't. Now, there are a whole lot of angles and arguments that you could go about this, um, looking at, you know, is this true? Was it really Israel that bombed that hospital, or was it actually a misfired rocket from Hamas? There are all of these minute details that you could look at, and those things certainly are really important, and I am interested in those. However, uh, 
what we've done this season is we have started from the top down. We, we've looked at, or I'm sorry, the bottom up. Uh, we have looked at the, the small, the easy to see, and then we've worked our way to the, um, to the concepts that are more like, you know, this, this maze or this spider's web. And I think that's what you really need to do when you begin with any conflict. You look, you, you uh, pick the low-hanging fruit. Where is the easy propaganda to see? And where is a lot of that propaganda occurring? And that doesn't prove which side is right or which side is wrong, but it certainly gives you some key indicators on, on where to move forward and where probably a lot of the deception and injustice lie. So in this episode, there are two major elements in, in this conflict between Palestine and Israel that I want to touch on and, and draw out in regard to propaganda that we can see. So the first concept of propaganda that I, I think uh, is extremely important, and this is, this is really important not just for this conflict, but for a lot of the world conflicts, um, you're going to see this as one of uh, the key indicators uh, or the key ways that truth is suppressed and propaganda perpetuated. And that is uh, when you see history as only modernity. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, let me start off, before we get into Israel and Palestine, let me show you through a number of other examples, hopefully one of which you'll at least be able to, to see it in, uh, if you can't see it in all of them. So first, in the United States, you know, black and brown individuals should be extremely familiar with this form of propaganda, with history as modernity. So I remember back, I think it was 2015, when, when this was a realization that I just started to have. It was you know, right around the time of Ferguson, Missouri, and, uh, and, and the race, um, you know, the, the police officer, I think Darren Wilson, uh, and you, you had uh, racial tensions and riots and protests and all kinds of things going on. And I was thinking to myself at that time, I was like, well, I, you know, I, I feel so bad for these police officers. I don't know how they, they can make these difficult decisions. Simultaneously, um, I, I could not understand how, um, how the black community was so up in arms about this, this one guy getting killed by a police officer. Even if it was a mistake, even if this police officer uh, did something wrong, then um, what's, you know, that, that's just one instance. It's an individual instance of something bad happening. So what? And what I failed to realize is that, um, is that this wasn't just one incident. This was something that the black community saw as uh, happening with a whole lot of frequency. And not just a whole lot of frequency in modernity, but stretching back a long, long, long time. You know, it was just part of the oppression that, that came with slavery and afterwards. And so as I started to read black history, like uh, W.E.B. Du Bois was one where you know, he's writing, I think he wrote uh, his, his main book around 1900 or something, and he's talking about um, the, the, the police and the injustices and, and singling out black people and quite a number of other works. And you're like, oh, this is something that's been going on that's never really been addressed. But because for me, 
on the on the news of police violence against black people just popped up and I only noticed it and it only um, got latched onto and there were riots about it in uh, in my lifetime in 2015, then to me, it was an individual instance in modernity. And I failed to understand the history of, of uh, what had been going on. And so for me, uh, whether I, I knew it or not, whether it was subconscious or, or conscious or not at all, you know, what I wanted to do is I wanted to press the reset button on racial justice. You know, I wanted to start history from point X without dealing with the systems that have been created, the systems that are, uh, have racism baked into them or the consequences of, of previous actions and, um, and restoration and what that would cost our society. I don't want to have to deal with those things. And so for me, uh, I didn't see systemic injustice. I just saw uh, an instance of injustice that uh, I felt should have been dealt with on an individual level as opposed to something that needed to be dealt with systematically. Uh, another example of this type of thing, you know, take a look at, I, I just went to see Killers of the Flower Moon, which was um, a, a movie that I'd really been looking forward to uh, because I, I'd read the book and the book was just so phenomenal. The The book was actually, if, if you see the movie, you need to read the book because the book does a better job of showing you how systematic uh, the violence against this one small tribe of people was. And, uh, but you, know, you take a look at the Native Americans, the Osage, um, who had oil on, on this land that they were basically, they were kicked out of their own land. And so they bought this junk property and they said, look, we'll buy this because nobody's going to want to take this from us. Well, and then of course, unbeknownst to the world, the oil boom and everything would come and they'd find oil under Osage lands. And so the Osage uh, would end up becoming extremely rich, like the richest people in like the nation, if not the world. But the government set up um, people to oversee their money so they couldn't take out their own money in a lot of situations. And these people who would control their money oftentimes um, just so happened to have all the people that they were overseeing, they would die. You know, these young people would get, would die um, a lot of times in, in very mysterious ways. And people would figure out how to funnel money um, to, to various people, you know, to the, the morgue, the undertakers, the police officers. Everybody had a hand in, uh, in this because they all profited from it very greatly. And so the movie does a really good job of showing you the banality of all of this, like how it's just, you know, everyday life, everyday business for these, these white people and how interconnected they all are with the oil magnates and everybody just having their hands in the murders. And the book does a good job of, of showing you just how broad uh, this, this spread across the Osage tribe and, um, and just how, uh, how systematic it was. Um, but that's another thing, right? We don't want to start with, with uh, Native Americans. We want to start our history in modernity. Well, you know, those, those Native Americans, they've got really high rates of alcoholism and they gamble their money away. Can you believe they still get uh, a lot of these tribes? They get allotments, they get paychecks, and they just squander it away. It's like, uh, okay, maybe they do have higher incidences of uh, all of these, these various um, um, issues, but what, like, wh what is the history? Where does the history start? Does your history start 
today or, you know, since the creation of reservations? Or does your history start, like, go back farther and farther uh, until you understand why we are today uh, where we are today? One of my favorite examples, uh, another example that is important for Americans to know, is Iran. And I've, I've talked about this one a number of times, but it's worth talking about again. Now, for most Americans, history, uh, the United States history with Iran starts in 1979, not just in 1979, but in November of 1979, when Iran took a bunch of Americans hostage. How dare they? Like, why would they hate us? You know, it's, it's for our freedom, right? Um, uh, but our history so conveniently begins with the hostage crisis in 1979 in November. We can't even go back two weeks to the end of October of 1979 when uh, the United States took in the Shah of Iran into the United States. This guy who was a dictator for decades in Iran, who was trained by the CIA in, in torture methods and things, who would uh, kidnap his people off the street, political prisoners, people that didn't agree with him, and do terrible things to him. And we supported him, right? And even after all of that, Iran, uh, after its coup and uh, overthrowing the Shah, they still didn't take hostages. But in, at the end of October, when we're like, all right, we'll, we'll give refuge to this guy, that, that was like the last straw for them, right? And if you go back even further, beyond uh, the, the dictatorship of the Shah, to the fact that the United States is the one who overthrew like the most popular leader in Iranian history, uh, uh, Mossadegh, and like we overthrew that government. Um, so we are responsible for the terror and the, the horrible uh, things that were going on in Iran uh, for decades, and we supported that. And then to just spit in their faces we accepted their, uh, their dictator into our country. And so they took hostages. And then we wonder, well, why do they hate us? Right? Because we not only did not install democracy in Iran, but we undermined democracy in Iran. And we implemented torture and terror there. And so they hate us. But you know, I remember when, I always forget the guy's name, was, I don't think it was Soleimani, but um, the Iranian general who was killed in Iraq by a U.S airstrike uh, or missiles. And I was asking people, like, well, why do you think Iran hates us? And they would just constantly go to this, uh, this you know, well, they, they took hostages. You know, they just, they hate us for our freedom. Nobody knew, nobody knows about uh, the, the coup that we established and the dictatorship that we set up, even though it's extremely common knowledge. Uh, we did this kind of thing, I mean, with other dictators too, Ferdinand Marcos of the Philippines, uh, we we took in and set him up in Hawaii after he he instituted terror in the Philippines for decades. Um, we just accept these uh, terrible fascist leaders uh, who do our bidding, and simultaneously we do terrible things and we undermine um, we undermine the sentiments of of uh, nations. We saw Haiti in our creation of their constitution. We did the same thing in Cuba. We took some of their land and we. Uh, forced a constitution on them, and then all the the different things that we were doing to the Castro regime, uh, Al Qaeda. You know why do they hate us? Well, that goes back to uh, Osama bin Laden and uh, his experience in in Saudi Arabia and with all the stuff that the U.S. was doing in the Middle East. 
you got why do South Americans hate us because of the Contras and and the terror regimes that we set up over there and our support of um, you know all the terror there and looking looking the other way for people like Pinochet and actually setting up dictators like Pinochet there. Like our history begins when it's convenient for us to begin, and it usually begins with uh, with somebody else doing something to us. We never take that extra step and go back farther to see. Why are they doing what they're doing to us? Now, I want to argue that it is the exact same sort of thing that is going on with, with Israel here in this conflict. You know, the, the history that Israel wants you to have and, and that most people in the United States have, it begins in like 1967, 1968, with the narrative of um, this helpless Israel that's just being picked on by all of its Arab neighbors and it's defenseless and somehow it pulls off this uh, this miracle win uh, against all odds and establishes itself and from that point on has to establish itself in a, a an extremely defensive position with a, uh, a very strong and aggressive military, not aggressive in the sense of like uh, going out to meet other people, but a, a very serious and very tough military that's ready to fight for its freedom. And there might be some aspects of truth in some of that, but but what Israel doesn't want you to do is it doesn't want you to go back before 1967. It doesn't want you to go back to 1947 and 48, and it doesn't want you to go back earlier than that. It doesn't want you to see uh, the land grabbing that they were doing. It doesn't want you to see the ethnic cleansing that they were doing. It doesn't want you to see um, the the murders and um, atrocities that they were committing against Palestinians as they were trying to evict them from their land, as they were trying to take over their land. Um, they don't want you to see that history because then the narrative isn't as helpful for them. It doesn't uh, exonerate them from the evils that they're doing, and it doesn't give them f- uh, free reign to do what they're doing now, which is bombing and killing civilians. because. If you believe that they've been picked on since their inception, and if you believe that they have done no wrong and they're this innocent party, then you are much more willing to accept the atrocities that they're committing right now against Gazan civilians because your history starts uh, with Israel as as the good guys uh, with injustice being done against them. So what I would challenge you to do with, with all of this stuff if there's a country that your country hates, so like the United States and Iran or Cuba, uh, or if there is a a group that is um, is doing something like Israel's doing, like Israel and Palestine, wherever in your mind the history starts, or wherever the news media and the narratives that they're they're talking about, wherever that starts, I want you to go back a couple decades at least, if not you know a century, and I want you to do some history research because, um, you know, sometimes you might still end up agreeing. So maybe you would, you would go back and you'd say, well, you know what? Israel is still, um, maybe more right than Palestine in this situation, but I really understand where the Palestinians are coming from. And what that's going to do, even if you end up landing kind of on the same team, you know, even if you're, uh, you move from 70, 30 to like 51, 49, even if you still land on the same side, what that does is that humanizes the other side. 
and it gives you empathy for them because you can understand where they're coming from. And it, it prevents this, uh, you know, propaganda making atrocities possible or unbelievable because what it does is it doesn't make atrocity possible. You will defend those Gazan civilians because that is atrocity and you're not going to buy into that propaganda. Um, and at the same time, it's not going to make atrocity possible um, or, or unbelievable because you will believe that Israel is capable of committing atrocities because you know their past. And um, even if you end up landing on Israel's team in terms of, of what you think who should have maybe more political weight, uh, maybe who, who has the better overall argument um, and, and such, it's going to humanize the Palestinians and it's going to cause you to call out Israel for the evil that it does do. And it does do evil, uh, even if you land, land on their team. And that's really just the, the wicked danger of propaganda that I'm seeing so much is that uh, it's forcing people to go all in on one team or the other. And there is zero nuance and there is zero humanization of uh, you know whoever the other team is. So whatever you do, make sure you understand history. This is one of the most important aspects of, uh, of why history is important and why you need to know it. But the second thing that I think we see here in, uh, in the Israeli, uh, the conflict with Israel and Palestine is this idea of history as mythology. And we've explored that a little bit, uh, especially towards the end of our season on government with the donation of Constantine and, uh, and as we've talked a little bit about religion, just seeing uh, history, how history and mythology are really important for, um, for a country. So what mythology is going to do is it, it does two things. First of all, when people do exactly what I told you to do and start digging back in the past, um, when you have a good mythology set up, it helps to prevent those snoops who start digging in your past. It helps to prevent them from uh, finding those skeletons in your closet. If you have a good, strong mythology set up, if you've controlled history really well, and if you have the right spin on it, um, then when people do go to the history books to start digging, like, you know, in the South, the, um, the lost cause narrative and all that crap that was in history books, um, like, even if you do start digging, you, you get, uh, you get, end up getting mythology that's going to make one side look particularly good. And so it's a, it's a defense against snoops who dig back in history, but it's also beneficial because, uh, for a group to create mythology, because if you create really good mythology, it's going to motivate, it's going to drive motivation for the future. Um, you know, because our founders were so great, you be like them too. And oftentimes both of these are really accomplished simultaneously. Just think about in the United States, the incorruptibility of the founding fathers. We've got this pristine whitewashed history that prevents questioning of our our current motives, right? Uh, we were we were birthed in liberty and freedom, and we are really just trying to preserve that liberty and freedom that uh, that was birthed with our founding fathers, um, who were noble, religious people. And there's just there's, of course, there are seeds of truth to that, but it's also just uh, a load of hogwash too. And um, we, we've dug into that this season. Uh, if you take a look at our our episode on Haiti. 
I think that's one where you can, uh, I touch on some of the founding fathers and just some of the, uh, the, the garbage that was back there. Um, but nevertheless, we don't have time to kind of delve on that now because we're talking about Israel-Palestine. But if you have this, uh, this mythological seed, this mythological core of identity, then what that ends up doing is that's going to give us a stamp of approval for the deeds that we do now because aren't we the heirs of, um, you know, of those founding fathers of that mythology? And it's going to give us a passion to preserve or to advance our agenda because our agenda is couched as a continuation of those incorruptible founding fathers. We're just trying to keep their legacy alive and keep this, this dream that they had alive by preserving our union. Now, we see this, I think, pretty clearly in the Israel-Palestine conflict. You've got this idea of Jewish Zionism. There's this idea that this, this Zionism, this uh, return to the homeland, is something that uh, is just this ancient longing for uh, for Israel, uh, Israelis, for for Jews. Um, when really, it's uh, it's a fairly modern contrivance for Jews. Um, in fact, it was interesting um, when I discovered that if if you look at the Babylonian Talmud, it has three particular vows. And one of the vows that it says, like, Jews are not to do is Jews are not to seek to return to their homeland. And that was really fascinating to me that, like, there's this longstanding tradition, this Jewish tradition, that you don't seek to return to your homeland. And in fact, a lot of Jews didn't return to their homeland when the state of Israel was created. And there are a lot of Jews, uh, religious Jews, who would view uh, a return to Israel as, like, idolatrous. I mean, they would say, no, 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 the Messiah is the one who sets up the Israeli state. Right now you have a secular Israeli state, and that's not the way that things are supposed to work. Like, you're, you're, um, you're trying to do something that God doesn't want done. Only the Messiah is supposed to do this. So there are a lot of Jews who were and are against the creation of the state of Israel because it's just not something that Jews have historically done for millennia. Um, and you then begin to realize that really what has kind of spurred on Zionism, what has birthed it and caused it to grow, isn't this ancient longing for a homeland that the Jews lost and just have wanted back. No, they've integrated into the cultures that they, they, um, where, wherever they were dispersed. But what happens is you start to get some Jewish persecution, particularly in Europe. And, uh, and then you have the rise of nationalism in like the, the 19th century. And so you get Zionism that is birthed out of, you've got a bunch of Jews who've been picked on in various countries like you know Russia and Eastern Europe and, and other places. And then you've got the birth of nationalism. So this nationalism that ends up creating fascism, Nazism, uh, and ends up leading to the Holocaust in, in Germany and wherever they take it, Zionism is birthed out of that, uh, or, or at least propelled out of that. Uh, it's birthed in nationalism, but then propelled forward, of course, after the, the Holocaust. It, it was made possible. Um, and it's just a, an extremely great irony that you know the, the same movement that produced Nazi fascism and the Holocaust, this idea of blood and soil, ended up producing Zionism, which is what? Blood and soil. That's what Zionism is, is blood and soil. 
uh, Israel is, I think, the only apartheid state. Uh, Avi Schleim has said is like the only apartheid state that is uh, in the UN, like ex- accepted by the UN. Like they're explicitly an apartheid state where they have different, uh, different rights and, and such for different races. Their ethnic cleansing of, of Palestine and the, the atrocities that they committed there um, is really in the same vein as what was done to the Jews in the Holocaust. It's a different scale, of course, and it is a, a different scope. You know, it's not, they didn't seek to just uh, annihilate everybody. They wanted to kind of get them out of the land and they were willing to kill and they uh, hated. But um, so certainly a different scope, but like the same sort of attitude, like these people are animals. Uh, didn't Netanyahu just say that? Like, um, you know, the Palestinians are human animals and they're going to treat them as such. Right? Same sort of thing. You, uh, you have Jews who literally just had their families destroyed in the Holocaust, who are coming into Palestine in 1947, 1948, and they are ethnically cleansing Palestinians. That's insane. Like, that's absolutely insane that uh, they would do that. But that's, that's humanity, right? Jews aren't different than uh, Germans, right? They're susceptible to propaganda. They're susceptible to hatred. And, um, and they did great evil. So, you know, this, this mythology is really important. And uh, not only do the, the, the modern Israelis not want you to look too far back in history because that's dangerous, but they also insert this, uh, you know, this perpetual Zionism, uh, Zionist movement into, into their history. They kind of create this, this false history of, um, of what's going on, of this perpetual Zionism, of these poor Jews after the Holocaust and they had nowhere to go, uh, of um, these Arabs who are just seeking their destruction and they have to defend themselves. And again, some of those things are true. Like the Holocaust was horrendous and great injustice was done towards the Jews. But uh, to then use that to justify injustice by them towards another group of people is just um, that that's just another injustice piled on top of injustice. So uh, those two things are really important for you to look out here for in the, the Israel-Palestine conflict. This idea of history as modernity and history as mythology. I hope you can uh, you get the opportunity to see the presence of propaganda here, um, but I, I do want to point out one more thing. And before I do that, I want to lay out all my cards on the table. Um, if you can't tell already by the way I've been talking, I think that in this conflict, Israel bears the brunt of responsibility uh, for the creation of the situation. I think that by and large. They are the main oppressors here. At the same time, what Hamas has done at times with disregard for or the, the targeting of civilians is also evil. And I'm not saying that the level of evil is the same in terms of the number of people killed or the brutality or any of that. Um, but what I am saying is that evil is evil wherever it's found, even if that evil is in response to something and even if we can understand why people do that evil. What I find unfortunate is that some people refuse to acknowledge any evil on the Palestinian side because um, this both-sidesism is often uh, used 
to exonerate the greater evil of, that the main oppressor is doing. And so people don't want to point out that what some Palestinians, like what Hamas is doing, they don't want to point out that this is evil. But that is so dangerous too. Because when you refuse to call out an evil that is actually evil, just because you think, um, you know, well, that's both sidesism, then um, what you're doing is you're, you're sowing the seeds of cyclical violence and atrocity. Because what you're doing is you're dehumanizing one group as all evil, they're the evil oppressors, while you're refusing to see evil in the oppressed group, right? You're, you're doing your pick a side here, right? Team A is all good, team B is all bad. And that is, is a dehumanization that leads to cyclo, cyclical violence. It, it's going to justify the violence of the oppressed. Now, I completely get um, how it is used to the oppressor's advantage when you do criticize the evil on, uh, on one group. But uh, nonviolent activists like Gandhi uh, and Martin Luther King Jr., like they've understood this forever. When Gandhi did his March to the Salt Mines, he said, look, when you're going and you come up against soldiers, do not raise your hand above your waist. Like, you keep your hands by your side because any, any violence that you do or anything that they can, they can twist to look like violence, so lifting your hand up to defend yourself, you, know, you get that on video camera, that might look like you're raising your hand to hit somebody. So you just take it. Um, like Gandhi recognized that. He recognized that um, things will be twisted to make you look guilty. And, um, and that's unfortunate. But if you are, if you are unwilling to, um, to call evil evil, if you're unwilling to, um, to hold your side to the standards that you wish would be used against you, then that's just injustice as well. And that's one thing that I love about the nonviolent community. Uh, places such as Waging Nonviolence, if you go to their website, um, they're, they don't like pick sides in the sense of um, they're not willing to brush any evil under the rug. And they, they will clearly pick a side in terms of which group is, is the oppressed group, but they're not going to justify violence. So I want to leave you with kind of a, a closing thought here as I encourage you to to not justify the, the violence of Hamas and to not be fearful of um, getting close to this both sidesism because uh, it's important to call out evil wherever you see it. In the, in the Bible, justice you know, flows forth like a river. And uh, I think that's kind of a, a beautiful depiction because I think what water does, or I know what water does, is it seeks its own level, right? It, uh, it seeks to be level. And what you see with all kinds of injustices, but particularly the injustice here with Israel and Palestine. As you look through their history, you recognize that there's a mountain of injustice against the Palestinian people, right? Ethnic cleansing, killing, um, economic injustice, all kinds of things. So when Hamas retaliates, um, some people call that injustice, and it is, I think, in, in, in technical term. But the way that we often use injustice, the way that uh, the news will use this idea of injustice, is that um, they level it against a group and use it to mean unexplainable, uh, in inexplicable, absolute evil. You know, what Hamas did was uh, injustice. 
But really, if you look at the history and, uh, and you see how things play out, what Hamas is doing is they are seeking justice. See, like I said, water seeks its own level. And, uh, and what Hamas is doing is they see this mountain of injustice against, uh, again, for, by Israel against Palestine. And so what they're doing is they're, they're kind of creating a more of like a system of locks. And, and what they're trying to do is they're trying to lift the level of the water up. They're trying to build their own mountain to kind of, um, you know, make the water flow back towards Israel. They're trying to fight injustice with uh, their own injustice. And of course, that's no justice at all. That's just an increase of injustice. The way that the Bible depicts, um, you know, the mountains is, is that the mountains will be made low. They'll, they'll be flattened out and the paths will be made straight. The way that you, you fight injustice is not to create your own mountains of injustice, but to have the mountains leveled. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how such a thing is accomplished with such a complex history. Um, you know, going back in history, I mean, we could even look at the, the Jews themselves, right? They had a mountain, Mount Everest of injustice uh, raised against them by Europeans and by the Germans in particular. And um, they had a huge mountain of injustice. But the way that they've tried to write that, the way that they've tried to, um, you know, get their own is by creating a different mountain of injustice now against the Palestinians. And so uh, if, while we could blame the Jews for the Palestinians, what was ever done by Europeans, by the Germans, to really bring about true reconciliation and justice towards the Jews? Is really Great Britain uh, taking a bunch of land from a group of people that have lived there for millennia and then giving that to the Jews? Is that really justice? I mean, Great Britain and the United States and, and all of the other countries that were part of that really have just as much to do with the evil done against Palestinians um, because we never really solved, resolved the issue with, uh, with the Jews and how they were treated and the injustice against them. We were just willing to pass that off to a group of helpless, uh, relatively helpless Palestinian people, you know, helpless against the Western powers anyway at that point. So there are just mountains upon mountains of injustice. And when you start to look back in history, um, it's much more complex and, and much darker than whatever news outlet you follow is leading you to believe. It's so easy for the West to blame uh, Palestinians, to blame Hamas. It's so easy for other groups to just blame Israel. Um, but nobody's... <laughs> Nobody's blaming empire. Nobody's blaming uh, the West that has created so much evil across the globe, across Africa and the Middle East in particular with, with the things that we've done, the border creations and injustice towards peoples. But it's deep and it's dark. And what you really need to get out of that is there's a whole lot of propaganda going around. And all of that propaganda is trying to get you to exonerate one group while uh, completely judging and condemning another group. And that's just, that's generally not the way that injustice works. And doing things that way are going to cause you to dehumanize one group of people um, and 
that's what leads to what we're seeing today. So hopefully, um, you know, this was a more off-the-cuff episode uh, recorded on the road. Hopefully, um, hopefully I, I didn't uh, speak offensively or, or anything else because I didn't have a bunch of time to edit. But um, those are just some, some thoughts I had that I wanted to be able to share with you all. I hope you enjoyed. That's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.